Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward today to learning more about the career of Trisha Alach. Trisha is originally from West Auckland and has lived and worked in Europe, the US and the UK before now making her base back home in New Zealand. She's carved herself a specialist career in strategic human resources, organisation development and talent. I was lucky enough to come across last year Trisha's long-running blog, How to Have a Happy Homecoming, telling the stories of New Zealanders returning back home to Aotearoa. Trisha actually interviewed me for her blog about my journey of returning to New Zealand after 17 years. And so today, I get to be the one asking the questions. Kia ora, Trisha, and thank you very much for being willing to chat with me today about your career. Thank you, Anna. Thanks so much for inviting me. No problem. So the the first question I've got for you, um, and it's one that I like to, to ask everyone at the start, is if you think a little while back to when you were maybe a kid or a teenager, and you were thinking what you might like to be or, or do when you grew up, what were some of your career thoughts and aspirations? So I, when I look back on my life, I realised that the die was cast at a very young age. My favourite book when I was a child was The Faraway Tree, which is a story about a tree which has a different land at the end of each branch. And so from a very early age, all I ever really wanted to do was travel mm. and see the world. But when I was younger, I didn't really know what jobs could let you do that. And the only one that I had personal experience of was air hostesses because we'd been on some trips with my family when I was younger. So for a long time, I thought that I would become an air hostess, but I didn't actually know how you became an air hostess. So that that didn't go very far. (laughs) It's funny. I had a similar dream of being an air hostess or a flight attendant. Unfortunately, I'm five foot tall, so I didn't even pass the first test of being able to reach the OV (laughs) lockers. But it was similar to you. That wouldn't it be a wonderful way to travel the world. And so then tell me then when you got started in terms of your working career, talk me through some of the, the highlights or the challenges of those first few years. So what actually happened to me is that when I was in the seventh form, I I was really bored at school. And so I decided that I wanted to leave school. And I said to my parents, you know, can I leave school? And they said, you have to get a job. And they said, go and talk to the school guidance counsellor. I think they thought that she'd talk me out of leaving school and they see what she says. So I went to talk to our guidance counsellor and she put me in touch with a friend of hers who owned an English language school and they were looking for an office junior. So I went and applied and I got the job. Mm. And that's when I discovered the, the world of English language teaching. So I found out that there was actually another way that you could live and work in lots of different countries by being an English language teacher. I worked there for about a year or so and really enjoyed the fact that I was every day interacting with people from all over the world, students and teachers. And one day I said to the Dean of Studies, how do you become an English teacher? And he said, well, you have to go to university and you have to get a degree and then you have to do this qualification called the RSA Diploma in Teaching English as a Foreign Language. And so I said, well, if I do that, will you give me a job? 
And he said, yeah, I'll give you a job. So then I went home and said to my parents, I'm going to university um, because I need to get a degree in order to do this. And they went, okay, that's cool. So I initially started doing an, a degree in, in, uh, in the arts, majoring in English and education, because I thought that's probably the most useful grounding if I'm going to become an English teacher. Mm-hmm. So I started. And what happened is that I was much better at university than anyone had um, expected. So my first paper, my education paper came back with an A plus and I continued to get really good grades throughout the year. And then at the end of that first year, I got a letter from the university inviting me to join the conjoint program, which meant that I could do my arts degree, a commerce degree or a law degree or a science degree alongside of it. So I kind of canvassed my friends and said, what do you think? And they all sort of agreed that law was not for me because that's an endurance degree. And science was not for me either because that's just not how my brain works. And we decided it would be commerce. And originally I thought I'd major in accounting because I had a part-time job as a bookkeeper and Mm -hmm. I'd always been good at that. And then found out that those lectures were at 8am on a Monday, so that was never going to happen. <laughs> then I thought, oh, I'll major in marketing because I'm, I'm quite creative and I can write. And then I found out you had to do two years of stats. And sort of in the meantime, I was doing my management papers and finding them really interesting and finding them that, I, that my brain worked that way. And, and I found that I really understood the work. So mm. I ended up majoring in, in management. And people sometimes say to me, how did you end up with an education degree and a management degree? And when I think about the common thread, it's basically a way of understanding people as they go throughout their lives because everybody goes to school and then everybody goes to work and they're two kind of multifaceted ways of thinking about that. So you've got psychology and philosophy and um, sociology, and they all give you this insight into people and, and what drives them and, and what their needs are and how they get those needs met either through their through their schooling or through their work. So that's what set me off on my path. And at the end of my undergrad degrees, um, I went on my first OE. I went to, the, to Scotland to live with my then boyfriend in Edinburgh, and I became a temp. So I I attempt in in various roles and that kind of was the first time I'd come across that way of working Mm. and I thought that was really interesting and when we came back to New Zealand the first time I I went back to university to do my master's and I decided that's what I would focus on. I was really curious about these people who followed a non-traditional career Mm. and I was really lucky because I had a lecturer initially and and the woman who became my supervisor, Catherine Casey, who was really interested in what she called trends in contemporary work. And when I sort of was talking in in vague notions around this idea of temping, she said to me, yes, you're onto something, you're onto something, we know we must explore this. So that's what I that's what I did. I did my masters and that and my thesis and that again did better than expected. And that led to two job offers. Um, one was to stay on as a lecturer at the University of Auckland and keep working in that area. And and I was offered the opportunity to take on a PhD and and kind of move along in that regard. And then the other was a job offer from my external supervisor who was based out at Massey to do some work with the labour market development group, basically taking my thesis and expanding the study to start, 
identifying these trends in the labour market around what was happening in, in terms of people's relationship to their work and, and why they worked and what they were looking for and what the different forms were. So I did that and I really found that interesting because it was personally, it resonated because I had never really wanted to follow a traditional career. I was just following my interests and being opportunistic about what came up. And this sort of gave me, you know, license to actually go out and have some of those conversations with people who were similarly minded, but whose lives were really different to my own and this kind of real myriad of careers that people were following. And then I decided that I actually wanted to leave academia. I was I looked around at some of my long-standing colleagues, people who'd been in academia for a long time, and I thought they're quite disconnected from the actual world of work. And I thought, I can't be an expert in this field if I don't have any experience of it. Mm. So I decided to leave and I started applying for jobs out out in the world and I went from one extreme to the other. So I went from an enormous university down to a three-person startup that focused on HR and recruitment consulting. Mm -hmm. And I started working in that area. And it was a great grounding in all the things that I was that I was interested in. Then I got a bit sick of that. And so I started looking around for something else and I ended up getting a job as a qualitative researcher for focus research. And so then I started doing depth interviews and focus groups and again, drilling into this real understanding of why people buy things basically, which was another kind of continuation of this kind of understanding needs and drivers which was fascinating, but the hours were an absolute killer. I don't know if anyone's, if you've ever worked in market research, but it's 8am starts and 11pm finishes. That was not really sustainable. So I went um, back to HR Consultancy. My old boss actually asked me to come back. So I did that. And then my then partner, now husband and I decided to, to move overseas. So we decided to go to Holland because I'd lived in the UK previously and, and he had a Dutch passport. And so we thought, you know, that'll be interesting. We didn't have anything to go to. We just figured that we'd, we'd sort that out once we got there. I started working with an organisation called Access, which had been in the Netherlands for 30 years supporting the international community. And that's when I started to learn about expatriate careers and discovered that there were all sorts of people who actually spent their lives living in different countries in the world. So, of course, that started to marry up a lot of my personal interests around travel, international careers, understanding what that kind of experience is like for people who perhaps haven't, you know, followed a, a conventional path. And I did that for a while. And then I got a job in executive education for RSM Erasmus University in the business school there. And I started working with a range of companies across Europe on leadership development programs, bespoke stuff. So really, again, bringing together this random collection of skills I developed over the years into understanding what companies were looking for, what kind of needs they were trying to meet and figuring out how we could actually deliver that as an executive education provider. That's how I ended up where I am in terms of my specialism. And then it's just gone on from there. I've just followed the things that have interested me and opportunities have come up. We're in the Netherlands for just five and a half years. We moved to London. 
I kept working remotely for RSM for six months and then one day the phone rang and it was a recruiter asking me if I'd be interested in a, a role at um, Millwood Brown as their Euro- European Director of Talent. Mm. And Millwood Brown is actually a brand and comms agency. Um, I was doing leadership development and talent management in the world of market research. It's I'd like to say that this was all planned in advance, but it really wasn't a lot of these things. Yeah, for me, it was really interesting. And listening to As You Went, there are all those, the themes that kind of popped up again. So as you say, that kind of market research piece, the work, and then them working for a market research firm, the international piece that was always there, and you did a little bit in Scotland, came back, then obviously pursued more of a piece out in the Netherlands. The expat piece in the Netherlands is a great place. There's Shell and Philips and Unilever, big global companies, to get some of those insights but that strong interest in kind of understanding people and their motivations coming through. And as you say, maybe not a master plan, but actually yeah. do start to come together those threads over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you've spent quite a number of years working overseas. What do you think that international experience has has given to your career? Well, it's interesting because I think my my sort of international experience started at a very young age because my father is a is an immigrant. He came from what was in Yugoslavia. And so I grew up biculturally to a large mm. extent. We had a set of cultural norms at home. And then when I was out in mainstream New Zealand, I would adapt. And I grew up in an area and I think a time in Auckland where sort of a lot of working class, second generation people. So going even just to my friends' houses after school, I'd be going around the world and adapting to all the different cultures. So for me, I think the international career in lots of ways was a coming home. So Mm. I felt very at home in that environment. I felt I had these skills from a young age of going into a new country or working with um, clients in, in different countries. And and just being able to pick up on what were the kind of cultural cues and how did I need to adapt. And so I think that gave me an opportunity to apply some sort of latent skills that potentially probably wouldn't even have been sought after in New Zealand or even appreciated, but they were in that kind of international context. Hmm. So I think that was a big part of it is developing that cultural intelligence, if you like. And then the other thing I think was just having my eyes opened to what happens in international businesses and how different things are when you're operating at that kind of scale. Mm. I was really fortunate, particularly when I was at RSM, we were working alongside some of the global thought leaders in areas of business. There were times where if I was trying to solve a problem, I could literally talk to somebody who was considered a a world expert and nut that out, which gave me access, I think, to ideas and and ways of thinking that I couldn't have otherwise had. And then, the, the so that's professionally. And then on the personal side, I think that the thing that being an expat gives to you, especially if you move around different countries, is that you're always new. Hmm. And so when you rock up in a new country and you don't know anyone and no one knows, your phone never rings. So you have to be really proactive and resourceful and set up that life for yourself. Hmm. So for me, that that was a challenge because I'm naturally perhaps more introverted and go with the flow and whatnot, but that just wasn't going to work. So I had to actually 
literally get online and, and start approaching. This is before meetups, but I think they used to have these hangouts or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and be kind of like, hello, you know, I'm new in town. Will you be my friend sort of thing? And go and meet complete strangers for coffee and, and kind of build relationships from there. So I think what that helped me do, again, is, is be more outgoing and reach out and build relationships with people that I might not otherwise have ever met. And that has really, I think, enriched my social life and also, again, my understanding of the world. Because in those in those cities and those places that we've lived, you know, our social circle have been people from all over the place. Even negotiating what time to meet for dinner can be interesting when you've got friends in your in that group who are Dutch and who want to meet at six and you've got Argentinians who think dinner happens at 10 and Italians who who are adamant it's at eight. So then you suddenly realise actually there's no such thing as dinner time and how do we negotiate around through those differences? Mm, That's fascinating. I still remember arriving in Madrid and being ready to go for dinner at seven and everything was closed and you're right, that just that sort of understanding of Ah, yes, there's been one way of doing things. Let's learn and and figure out a way which we can figure it out together. Now, Trisha, you've talked a bit about how your upbringing impacted your international outlook. And we spoke a bit earlier on when you and I had spoken offline, but I'd love to kind of capture it for the record. How do you feel your upbringing has impacted your career? Well, I think, ironically, the fact that I grew up in a kind of, you know, working class environment without a lot of access to people who had professional careers really helped because I um, I never felt any pressure to do anything in particular. And so I didn't really know what I was supposed to do in terms of career. And the only expectations that were ever set for me were that, you know, I had a job and that I was able to support myself. And beyond that, I was kind of free to follow my nose and, and follow what interested me. And there was never any, I never felt any sense of judgment mm-hmm. around, you know, whether I was doing it right. And so I think for me, that was very liberating. And it meant that I could, did what I wanted to do and and felt that support from people. Um, and then... I didn't realise that it was different to how other people had grown up until I started to meet people who, who'd gone, you know, perhaps to schools where um, on careers day they, they kind of got the message that they could either be a doctor or a lawyer and those were the only two legitimate choices. Mm. I grew up in the 70s and there was this saying, you know, girls can do every, anything and I took that to heart and it, it genuinely felt like I could do anything from choosing to be a stay-at-home mother to being a in banking or being a hairdresser or anything um, and it was up to me to make that choice. And that for me is is so fascinating and and, you know I think reflecting back on my own career I remember thinking oh you know I there was a certain pressure of what what was appropriate or what you should do with with some of the education that I was privileged enough to have had, and so uh, you know for myself, I remember when I uh, when I said to my parents that I wanted to be a rock star or uh, go and do musical theatre, those were kind of perhaps less encouraged versus more of a, a, a corporate uh, intellectual mm. career. So really interesting to hear actually that on that flip side, that kind of well, well I can do anything, and that genuinely means anything. 
I remember when I was in the fifth form, um, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be an artist. Mm. And so I was choosing my fifth form subjects and I said to my parents, you know, I want to do art. And in those days you could do, if you're in the top stream, you're allowed to do six subjects instead of five. And so my mother very diplomatically said to me, well, of course, darling, you know, you could be an artist, but um, but sort of just in case that doesn't work out, why don't you take sort of accounting or economics or something, which mm. I had done in the previous year and I was kind of good at. So um, long story short, I failed art and came to off of my school for accounting. So, mm. I, I, but I was always encouraged to make my own choice and, you know, quote unquote, allowed to do whatever I wanted. And I think what that let me do is figure out for myself, what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. Mm. So, so there weren't any limitations put on me um, in the form of expectation. Mm, wonderful. Oh, thank you very much for, for sharing that piece. And then if I'm right in thinking, Tricia, you then next had a period of time in which I guess you embraced your own portfolio career. You went, to, to, went out freelancing for a period of time. Yeah, so when um, I was in London, I was coming up to my 40th birthday and I hit a wall and I thought, I've been having the same conversation for about 15 years by this stage and I just thought, I really need to think about something different. I need to have a break. I resigned from my job and I went to India, as you do, to mark any great transition in your life. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to London, I started studying for a diploma in reflexology, which Mm -hmm. um, was really interesting. It was something I'd never done before. And so the curriculum was around anatomy and physiology. It was around understanding different kinds of, of illnesses and how the body works, a lot around nutrition and taking a more holistic approach to health, which was fascinating to me on a personal level. And also it was it was a form of work that was really manual. You were literally hands-on, which was so different for me because I'd spent over a decade in that kind of strategic conceptual world. Mm. And so I really enjoyed it. And then what happened is my world started to come together in 2013 and London was coming out of the GFC and it was and a lot of the big companies and the banks in particular were starting to look at themselves and go, what have we learned from this? Hmm. And how can we, you know, support our people? And so they started looking at how they could bring in some kind of wellbeing sort of stuff into how they were looking after their staff and looking at different ways of developing people. And I was practicing yoga at the time in a West London studio and one day the the owner of the studio put this note in one of the in the newsletter that went out and it sort of said, anyone out there's got kind of management experience and, and would be interested in helping me out get in touch. So well, I have that, I could help. And so I said, well, I speak both languages. Yeah. I speak yoga and I speak corporate HR. And so we started to translate some of what you could actually develop by taking kind of a yogic approach to development. And that kind of led to some interesting stuff. Mm. And then a little bit later, the owner, James, he he asked me if I would become his business coach because they kind of had that skill set as well. So that was really fun. And you'd know this, Anna, I think that when you are coaching an owner of a small business, the lines are really blurred. So you'll be talking about what are your goals in terms of the business, but at the same time, you're also talking about what are your goals in terms of your personal life. And we need to factor those into whatever we're doing with the business. 
So that was a really a great experience for me. And I really enjoyed applying the skills that I had to this kind of new world, this kind of holistic health, this kind of alternative therapies and bringing the two together. And then alongside that, other clients sort of started to pop up and, and ask me to do things that were more kind of in the traditional talent and leadership space. I, I went back and did some more work for Millwood Brown and kind of had this nice little portfolio going, which I really enjoyed because it felt very balanced and kind of appealed to my need to have a variety of things on the go. Mm. So that was about the time that I started thinking about moving back to New Zealand because I could see that I could have that kind of portfolio here. But of course, the best laid plans and all that. So we just started talking about when we come back and started putting some timeframes in place. And then my husband got asked to move to Seattle Mm. with the company that he was working for. Naturally, this won't come as any surprise to Mm -hmm. anyone. When faced with the choice of moving to a new country or doing something else, I'm always going to say, yep, let's go. So we moved over to Seattle quite quickly without not intending to, with no kind of real plan in place. And then I decided to have a sabbatical to not look for work there. And so what I did in my first year there is I I started writing. So I actually wrote three e-books, one on well-being, one on managing stress and one on navigating change. It kind of gave me the opportunity to get out a bunch of stuff I'd been thinking about um, over the the previous couple of years in a way that, you know, because I have this development background, I I can't learn anything without teaching it. Mm. So I thought, I've got the time and let's do that, which again was really fulfilling for me personally. And of course, now what's interesting is that that body of knowledge that I developed over time is turning out to be incredibly useful um, Mm. as we start to look within HR and within talent at how do we bring wellbeing, a wellbeing focus to that? How do we help people manage through stress? And of course, how do we help people navigate through change? Mm. So again, absolutely no master plan, but somehow I, I managed to pick up things along the way that that always end up being useful just not necessarily in in the way that I might have thought they would be and then even the the piece kind of 20 years ago starting to think about people contracting or portfolio careers or doing a variety of jobs that's before its time and then the same the well-being piece actually of course that's become bigger and bigger and right now as you say managing stress navigating change well-being are such important topics in the workplace yeah fascinating and you are so, because I remember when I first published my thesis and, and there were some um, papers published as well and people in, in academia saying this can't be true, people can't be choosing this life and then of course fast forward 20 years and mm. the rise of independent workers, the rise of the gig economy, all the research coming out showing that lots of people are actually looking to have kind of more control over their lives and actually pursue quote-unquote non-traditional careers. So I think it is interesting somehow the things that I might pick up on quite early. It might take a couple of decades to get there, but eventually they do seem to come through. There you go. You're before your time. And Tisha, tell me about this. Obviously, some real highs in terms of your career, but equally, careers are, are not always easy or straightforward. Mm. What have been maybe one or two of your toughest career challenges or toughest career moments? 
I think for me, my perennial challenge is boredom. So mm. I have a really high need for, for variety. And I also, for me to enjoy my work, it has to be intellectually stimulating. Mm-hmm. If I'm bored at work, then I find that really difficult. And that's what was happening in, in 2012. And the job I had was brilliant, actually. It was kind of tailor-made for me. And I there was nothing objectively wrong with it. I had a, I had a Worked in a fabulous team, fabulous CEO, carte blanche to do stuff, but I was just over it. You know, I just didn't have the enthusiasm for it. And so Mm. trying to figure out what to do at that time was really tough because there was nothing really wrong. I I just wasn't feeling it anymore. And I found that that was a challenge. And so for me, it was just to a certain extent taking that leap of faith and going, do you know what, I'm just going to take the first step which is to leave, and then I'm going to mm. trust that the, the next step will appear. And that piece of actually, well, I'm not quite sure what's happening next, and I'm taking what might be externally perceived as a risk, leaving a good, secure job with people you like, but actually almost trusting and believing because it's, I guess for you, it's happened in the past, things have worked out, and that they yeah. will work out then again in the future in a, in a way that maybe you can't foresee, but hopefully it will be will be good and will some, somehow those threads will come together. What have, if I flip it around the other way, what are you really proud of in terms of your career? It's interesting. I, I was reflecting on this and I sometimes, I actually think that some of the things that I'm most proud of are, is the work that I've done outside of my job. Hmm. So one of the things that I am really proud of is the blog, the Happy Homecoming blog, because I know that really helps people. It really helps individuals navigate that transition and to not feel so alone I have also been really proud of some of the coaching that I've done, both sort of within within my jobs and outside of it. So for me, if I can help somebody achieve what they want, whatever that is, that tends to be where I get my greatest sense of satisfaction and, and pride, like I've done a good job. Nice, I like it. And you have a pretty busy working life still. I know you've moved back into the corporate world now. And you've talked a bit about yoga. And I'm wondering if, if let me ask a broader question, how do you find that balance between work and, yeah. and your broader life? That's a really good question. So I, I feel like it's a case of kind of balancing the seesaw. So the way that I've eventually figured this out over the years, and believe me, um, I did not have anything that even closely resembled balance for a really long time, is that if my work life is getting heavier and heavier, I need to weight down the other side with other things. So actually, it means that I need to put more effort into my social life. I need to make sure that I'm getting out and about and and doing things that aren't to do with work. I also came across this concept of, I can't remember what it is, like key... There's there's something about you have to have, there are things in your life and if you don't do them, the rest of your life falls apart. This was back in 2013 as well. And I decided that my sort of order of priority was that meditation was number one and yoga was number two and social connection was number three and then meaningful work was number four. And that's how I structure my day. So every morning, regardless of how early I might have to get up in order to do it, I make sure that I actually sit down and meditate for 20 minutes. I book my yoga sessions into my diary and then organize things around that. And similarly with kind of the social connection, even when it's really tempting to 
to flag it and stay home on the couch. I will force myself out there. And I am really mindful if nothing else is going on in my life other than work because that can really, I think, suck you into this kind of vortex where you you lose sight of everything else. And it doesn't help. It certainly doesn't help me. I'm much better in my working life if, if I've got other things going on, if I'm, you know, getting stimulation and, and other things to think about. That kind of seems to refresh my brain as well as helping me recharge. So that's how I approach it, just to be really aware that there are certain things that need to happen for me every day and every week to, so that I stay healthy and, and have to maintain that good mental well-being. And then that kind of feeds into the work. Mm, and for me, I've, I, it's a really interesting approach because sometimes the temptation is, is when we get really busy at work is to drop everything else just to get through that. Yeah. Whereas actually instead, actually making more of an effort to make sure those things are in your life that bring you some joy and give you energy and give you some calm and, and clarity that those things actually become more important. Mm, I like it. And it is, it is in some ways counterintuitive, the mm. idea that you add more into your life to create balance rather mm. than taking things away. But as I said, I've had decades of experimentation with this and, and this is the approach that works for me. There you go. I think it is a, equally the, the thought around balance is everyone's different in terms of what balance looks like for them. Absolutely. And talk to me now about what where you see your career heading in the future. So I don't really know the answer to that because I am interest-led. So I think what will probably happen is that I will start to work more again in the international space at some point. A little bit will depend on what happens with COVID, but I expect that at some point we will go and live overseas again. And if we're back in an expat hub I'm, I've got this little project that's bubbling away in my head, which is around exploring some of the trends in terms of international assignments. And Trisha, just a, a last question. What career advice would you have for others? So I think career is really personal. And I, I think my advice would be to really follow what interests you. At the field that I work in, I spend a lot of time talking to people about their career and people who, I think it was Steve Jobs who said that you can't follow someone else's dream. People who try to follow what someone else sets out for them in terms of, of how career looks like in terms of success terms are often very unhappy. Mm. So I think follow your interests, um, follow your passions, pay attention to what gets you excited and do that. And don't feel like you have to, that it has to look a particular way. I think it's much more important that it feels right to you than it looks right to somebody else. Mm. Wonderful advice. Brilliant. Trisha, thank you so much for me. That was fascinating having got to know you a little bit to then hear more about your mm. career journey. And there were some really interesting Chris and turns that I didn't know about, but mm. I look forward to hearing more about over a next glass of wine when I'm next up in Auckland. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Anna. All right. Bye-bye now. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.